Certainly it's good to be able to be together on the first day of the week, the morning that's now before us, that we can pour out our heart and worship to the God whom we love and the God who has so loved us. Certainly it's good to look about all over the assembly today and to appreciate that things are as well with you and with me as they are, and that we have been given the privilege, as just expressed in prayer, to assemble in the way that we are. The lesson this morning, as you've noticed in the title, has to do with an anxious interview. An anxious interview that will be prompted by and surrounding the discussion of the 19th chapter of the book of Matthew. If you would be turning to that location, and we will note several of the ideas contained in the opening few verses of that chapter. Matthew, the 19th chapter. As we begin that sort of lesson, or at least the thinking surrounding it, this opening slide will serve as an introduction to some of that which is going to follow in our lesson today. One of the most basic and fundamental and, quite frankly, the most common of the observances in our world is marriage. And yet, there are many questions about that that no doubt come to our mind, but questions to which we would very much like to have the answers. And so it is today that I thought that we would portray or at least picture the following. I'd like you to imagine Jesus Christ in a position, perhaps on a stage, in an audience as a group of people, much like reporters today who ask questions of a person being interviewed. Sometimes as we watch a particular athlete or some other individual who is in a position and there's a room full of individuals, reporters, who are ready to ask questions. Imagine that scenario were to develop today with Jesus Christ being the one interviewed and the questions surrounding the topic of marriage. It is with that in mind that let's notice some of the questions that might be asked. One that starts like this. You can imagine as Jesus takes His seat, ready to, in fact, address the questions asked, that He opens the floor for questions. A person initially and with great excitement asks, Where did marriage come from? Now this person at this point may well have many ideas in mind about perhaps the historical introduction or the way that this entity we call marriage came about. But the person is interested, what about the Lord's answer? In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, Jesus made this statement. As I set the stage, if you will, about this particular passage, the Pharisees came to Jesus. And in a way, He was interviewed on that occasion. It was the case that they were a bit perturbed or at least divided about the considerations of what would allow a divorce to, to occur or take place. In fact, beginning in verse number 3, this is the question they ask Him. The Pharisees also came unto him, that's Jesus, tempting him and said, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now at that point we notice easily their question. Now please note with me the Lord's response. Verse number four, and he, that's Jesus, answered and said unto them, Have ye not read? That he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. 
And so to the question that you and I just noted a moment ago, the Lord has given the answer. The person asked, where did marriage come from? Jesus began by saying, have you not read? I would think that we could embed in our thinking at that moment the issue that will put to rest the issues and problems of our day. People just don't read the Bible. And if they do, they do not take as authoritative what it says. The Lord said to them, have you not read? Let's face it, Jesus had the absolute authority from heaven. He could have propounded the answer right then and there. But what did He do? He turned their attention back to the ancient documents that are the will of God. Have you not read? Today, if we would, as a society, as a worldwide people, if we'd read the Bible we would have the appreciable approach to every major matter in society, including marriage, including the family, including all of those things that relate to it. Jesus again said, Have ye not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Isn't it interesting and quite intriguing that when the person in this case asked the question, Where did marriage come from? The Lord went back to the beginning the very initial circumstances of time. He didn't appeal to an answer centuries later or millennia later. And yet you and I are aware that today there are those scholarly individuals who wish to appeal for the basic defining matters of marriage to something that was written about 40 years ago. The Lord didn't stop there. He went back to the very beginning and today, if we would appreciate what God intended marriage to be and appreciate the place from which it sprang, we too must go back to the beginning. Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? But then verse 5 elaborates like this, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. And so mention was made of a man and his wife, the understanding that you and I would now take to be marriage. As the Lord has answered that question, you'll notice a few additional thoughts then on that slide. When Jesus gave this inspired response, He took those Pharisees, and yea, you and I today by inspiration, back to the scene at the beginning. This is where marriage came from. And not only that, note the first three, or rather the three words near the beginning of verse number 5, for this cause. With God being the originator of it, as the Lord had here explained, there's a very obvious conclusion, isn't there? And it's what I've written for your consideration on that slide. If it's the case, and so it is, that God originated marriage, that means He has the absolute authority to dictate its character, to affirm its nature, to regulate everything with respect to it. Who can enter into it? Who can, dis who can dissolve it? Only He can determine it. No man anywhere has any right to make such presentations because God is its owner. There's another thought here, though, here that's a bit, that's a bit interesting. Suppose this person asking questions were to make the observation... Culture seems to have very little to do with the origination of marriage. And even today, sociologists and those who study not only cultures now, but cultures in the distant past, 
Every evidence that we've ever observed points to the fact that every culture everywhere has this entity we call marriage. Now, it's true that particular rites, like what's involved in the wedding itself, that may vary culture to culture. But as far as we can tell, everybody everywhere has enjoyed the privileges and the nature of marriage. Doesn't that also highlight that no man anywhere came up with it? If every society and every culture has enjoyed its character, doesn't that point to its origination with one far greater than man? The God of heaven originated it. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 25, we read in terms of a principle concerning matters such as that one, that God rules in the kingdoms of men. And thus, that would include His direction and His information about the blessed beauty of marriage. You'll notice as we close that opening question, and so the Lord having answered that one, He opens the floor to another question. Are there other questions that someone might have an interest to ask? And so another gentleman, another person, based on the Lord's previous answer now says, But I have a question. What is it that constitutes marriage? That's a good question, isn't it? And how timely. You and I know that our nation today is continuing a rather notable struggle in appreciating what marriage is. Those in high places, those rather notable government officials, the Supreme Court justices, just to be very specific, have made their decree, their declaration. But we're going to ask the Master, what is marriage? You and I just noted verses 4 and 5 of Matthew 19. Let's let the Master speak again. Verse 5 says, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. You might initially appreciate then that as the Jesus gave that answer, here were a group of Pharisees, and they were no doubt excitedly awaiting Jesus' delivery on these matters. I'm sure it didn't go anywhere close to the way they thought it would. And yet as Jesus here took them back by asking, Have you not read? In verse 5, for this cause, shall a man leave father and mother? When you and I recollect Genesis chapter 2 and remember that at that time, Adam didn't have any parents on earth to leave. There was one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve, and yet the principle laid down that's going to be the direction for all time on this matter. Man will leave father and mother. His primary devotion will be to his wife. Hers will be to him. And the last statement in the verse is, they will be fashioned and made into one flesh. Their union, their unity, their togetherness, far beyond the matters of simply what's physical. A common bond and mission to serve and assist one another in the pleasing and the service of God. No wonder in that connection, in that light, a few statements on that slide readily come before us as we use other verses to help us even more thoroughly appreciate it. There are three times in the Bible that phrase, one flesh, in its relation to marriage is found. The Genesis chapter 2 passage, this passage in Matthew 19, and later in Ephesians 5. And there, as Paul was discussing ultimately Jesus and His church, he borrowed the understanding of marriage to help cement in their thinking the grand union between Jesus and His church. 
prompted by one flesh just as a man with his wife. Is it any wonder then in that connection that marriage will involve love? That man loving his wife, that woman loving her husband, that kind of love prompted in Ephesians 5 in these words, specifically to the husband, Jesus said, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. That kind of love is profound. That kind of love is deep. That kind of love is very meaningful. It certainly isn't superficial. It certainly isn't hollow. It certainly isn't, let's say, that which is rather trivial. But rather, that depth to be appreciated there is highlighted in two different Greek words in various places within the pages of the book of God. There are times the word agape is used to describe this, and it's a selfless kind of love. And there are other times when it has reference to a word phileo, which is an emotionally driven love. And so in marriage, the husband and wife, they're emotionally attracted to each other. They're emotionally motivated for for one another. But if that marriage is to be that which ultimately it could be, there's a selflessness in it, doing what's best for the other person in every instance and in every situation. That kind of selflessness is certainly an honorable thing. Proverbs 31 will describe the virtuous woman, and she was a married woman, and yet her husband trusted in her, and she never strove to do him any ill. And in fact, she endeavored to do that which was not only in his best interest, but also in those of the family. That kind of selflessness closes that slide with these two final things. Although much might be said about the blessings of marriage, certainly companionship was one of the initial observations mentioned in Genesis 2.18. When God looked upon His creation, it wasn't good the man was alone. And that prompted him to bring the deep sleep upon Adam and ultimately fashion a woman. And as God brought her to him, you'll notice that that marriage was, was very shortly, of course, to be performed. No wonder the last thought then would be this. When you and I appreciate what the Lord had taught here, this action interview has reminded us of some rather profound and deep matters even for our day. Because isn't it interesting? The next question is going to mention this. So who is it, someone else may ask Jesus, having heard His answer to these two questions. So who may engage in marriage? That's another great question. As I mentioned a moment ago, our nation, our society has begun to move in the direction very different than what the Bible would have to say on this matter. Isn't it true that if man is able to legislate for himself, if he is able to in fact give the answer to this question, then are there any limits on who might well enter into marriage? We now know that it has become a legal matter in our land for sexual unions, same-sex unions to occur in which a man can marry a man or at least enjoy all the benefits of such an arrangement, and the same for women. But is there any reason to stop the consideration there? Can a man marry an animal? Can a woman marry an animal? What about a plant? I say all of that, and I don't don't say it to be humorous. When our Supreme Court made the decision it made in June of 2015, it in fact opened a floodgate 
And there are now cases in the court systems of our land, haven't yet made it to the Supreme Court, but cases in the court systems of our land that have in fact in part begun to address the matters that I just raised. And given the precedent that the court has set, what will be the verdict? I do not want to think about it. The point is, if we allow man to dictate who may enter into marriage and what the characteristics of that shall be, surely there's no restriction or limitation. But yet, we have asked the question of Jesus, or at least our interviewee has done it. So who may enter into marriage? And let's let the Lord answer. In verses 4 and 5, we've already noted a first observation that we might make. Jesus again said, Have you not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Here's our first observation. I suspect 30 years ago it would never have been thought to be necessary to emphasize from a pulpit that those to enter into marriage had to be male and female. There couldn't be two males, couldn't be two females. But yet the Lord thankfully has embedded that appreciation for us from the character of this passage and others. And He went on to say again in verse number 5, "...this cause shall a man leave father and mother cleave to his wife." And so we've already learned basically that there is this requirement on the part of God that it's male and female that can enter into this union with the blessings of marriage. You'll furthermore notice on that slide that we now appreciate God's regulation on that point, and that has put an end to the particulars of man wishing to assert what he might prefer. About the middle of that slide, you'll notice, though, there are other things that we readily and rather quickly see as well. So it's entirely possible to imagine a man and a woman who may enter marriage. Is that guaranteed to be pleasing unto God? Are there any restrictions on the man or the woman? If you'll jump down furthermore in that verse, that set of verses, there are other things that we can easily say. Verse number 9 says, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Now the Pharisees had asked the Master about putting away your wife. For what causes may I do this? And Jesus is about to give some details concerning that point. But as you and I note verse number 9, He says, Anybody that puts away his wife, other than for the case of fornication, and proceeds to marry somebody else, that person's guilty of adultery. And so too is the person you've married. So although in the eyes of the land you may have entered into this marriage, and the court system may have given you the stamp of approval, the judge may bang the gavel and say, wonderful marriage, you'll notice that God hasn't done so. Again, to that person in that circumstance, entering into that marriage, you're now living in adultery. And you're causing the person who you're married to to also be living in adultery. As that statement of verse number 9 is presented, you'll notice that they of that day understood very well the strength of it. Remember, Pharisees had asked the question, and as Jesus answered it, the Lord's own apostles and other of His disciples were there listening to what Jesus had to say. May I invite you to note how they reacted to the Lord's answer in verse 10. 
His disciples say unto them, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Don't you find that intriguing? They understood very well what Jesus taught. It sunk quickly into their thinking, and they said, Lord, if that's the way it is... You see, they were accustomed to a looseness concerning marriage, an appreciation of easily acquiring a divorce and finding another as a mate. And they were quick to say, Jesus, if that's the way it is, it's better not to marry. Jesus didn't disagree with them. He embedded in their thinking rather quickly, don't you suppose, the nature of what was involved in the commitment of marriage. It is with that in mind we close that slide and appreciate this. In Proverbs 18, verse 22, how sweet it is then to reflect upon. Maybe we often ponder the problems, but think about those marriages that do not have problems like these, where the man and the woman are understanding of the will of God and are committed to it and do set as their dedication to live in harmony with it. Then that kind of circumstance, much like that Proverbs passage, the man that finds that kind of wife has found a good thing. And it's a blessing to be sure. The fourth question, one having seen who may participate in marriage, let's perhaps note this. So after hearing that initial question, someone else perhaps excitedly raises his or her hand. Well, I'd like to know, well, how long is marriage supposed to last? So this other person has just asked something that involved divorce. Jesus, so how long should a marriage last? Verse number 6 of our passage will point this out. Jesus again speaking said, Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh. And we noted earlier, didn't we, from Jesus' own reference that one flesh is the description of that entity that's fashioned. But verse 6 goes on to say, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Isn't it interesting in the Lord's statement that it was God that joined them? It wasn't the preacher. It wasn't the judge. It wasn't the policeman. It wasn't the captain. There's a lot of people authorized to perform wedding ceremonies. But whoever the officiate is, is not the one that joins the people. It's God that does it. And thus it can only be done in according to His will and according to that which He has directed what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. We're left then to appreciate that it is His will that they remain together, they remain married. Isn't it true that back in Genesis 2, when God not only brought the woman to the man, so He gave the bride away, but not only that, He officiated the ceremony. God married them. And there was nothing in that passage other than these words, a man leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and there'll be one flesh. The description of a lifelong togetherness, a commitment one unto, uh, unto the other, and the words of what usually are a part of marriage ceremonies, till death do us part. Is it any wonder then in that particular lie? That's important that we understand this and that we help others to understand it, because our world, at least in the main, has very little interest in this. We know very well how that more often than not, we read on the news, because the ones that make headlines are those that are so short. Some celebrity or some other 
known figure has married, a couple of months later, maybe a couple of years, and a divorce is now in the works. Maybe it's already taken place, and soon there's to be another marriage. And sometimes when individuals pass on, we read they've been married seven or eight times or more. And all of that almost makes a mockery of what the Word of God has revealed. And yet Jesus said, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. It's fair to say as you close that slide, or at least come to that point with me, verse number 9 will again say this, Whosoever, that means any person that's a descendant of Adam, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. Brother Wayne read earlier, and that translation used sexual immorality as the phrase. And shall marry another committeth adultery. Now, adultery, of course, is a very serious matter, isn't it? Because in Galatians chapter 5, as well as in Revelation, we have those that shall not enter heaven, and adulterers are those listed. And so to be guilty of adultery is to forfeit, you see, the opportunity and the blessedness of entering heaven. And those, so you've lost it all. Is it any wonder that as Jesus made this statement, you could almost hear and witness the mouths of certain Pharisees drop open in disbelief. And today, there are still people who virtually their mouths would drop open in disbelief. We're so accustomed, are we not, to having the ability to choose. If we don't like something, we get rid of it and acquire another one. Be it a car, a house, a job, we're just used to that way of thinking. And yet when it comes to marriage, it isn't that way. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Now we mentioned earlier about death. We know that if a person dies, then according to Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and following, the particular specifics of that marriage are no more. And so that person that's now alive can secure, can enter into another marriage. Now there are stipulations, of course, in 1 Corinthians 7.39 in relation to that. A Christian should only marry in the Lord, but in that regard and in that way, you notice that there are statements God has made even on this subject. The fifth question, and the one that will develop even more carefully based on the one we just mentioned. So we know that there is this thing called divorce, and the Bible mentions it. But it is not as openly available. It is not as widely appreciable as the human family has recognized it traditionally to be. You know, in our land today, we know that marriage is really not looked upon very sacredly at all. You've seen the advertisements in newspapers and on billboards and other places as well as I have. You can get a marriage, you can get a divorce for about $125. That's all it takes. And you don't have to have any reason at all. Just go to a lawyer, say, I want a divorce. Pay $125 or so, and the lawyer will make it so. The person's spouse has nothing whatsoever he or she can say about it. You are forced by law, if one of the marriage partners wants it, you are forced to make your appearance in court, and it has to be that way. 
You can't offer any reasons that will make it not occur. You can't offer any forceful considerations that may, in fact, sway the movement of the judge. Now, there was a day in time in our land, a hundred years or so ago, when there was divorce, certainly. But there had to be some adequate reasons, or at least some consideration that would prompt it. Today, there's this thing called irreconcilable differences. What is that? The Bible doesn't have that phrase in it anywhere. We understand that there will be choppy seas on occasion in a marriage. But in as much as they have been made one flesh, they'll work it out. And that's God's will that it be this way. And they will be stronger as a result of it. At the very least, we could say, when Jesus gave this answer, verse number 9, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. That exception clause is very, very direct and very specific, isn't it? Any other reason prompting the consideration of this divorce then does not meet the considerations of that exception, and any subsequent marriage would be an adulterous one. Any subsequent marriage would then not be right. Doesn't it point a very directed question? We have to appreciate then that the Lord's teaching on this subject, not only was it very strict in the ears of those Pharisees of that day, but 2,000 years later, it still rings with such a powerful directive from heaven, doesn't it? And again, as you close the verse, it's not that the one that enters the marriage the second time only, but the person married also is guilty of adultery. And therefore, both are in a situation where they cannot go to heaven that way. How strong are these words? We noticed it a moment ago in the, in the reaction of those disciples. No wonder as you close that particular statement, the sixth question is this. And after those disciples ask, if it be that way, then it's better not to marry. Maybe there's this cloud of negativity over marriage. Maybe we ought to just disband it and maybe we ought not have much interest in it. Or to ask that differently, is marriage an honorable thing? Is it something we ought to encourage young men and women to think about with positive feeling and positive thrust and look forward to? Absolutely. Could I invite each of us to think about how many things in Scripture relate to that? If a church is going to have an elder... He's got to be a married man. The church can't have elders without married men because that's one of the qualifications. And so the leadership of the church needs to be a man who is acquainted with a family, who not only has learned to deal with the one flesh of his wife, but also he's got to have children. And in so doing, he knows about how to direct them. He knows about how to lead them. He knows how to deal with their different personalities and he can thus oversee the flock of God with all of those skills he has acquired. No wonder this statement then in verse number or question number six. Don't you love the wording of Hebrews 13 4? Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. There is a difference between the marriage that God approves and looks upon with favor, and this whoremongering, this fornication. Sleeping with somebody's not marriage. That's fornication. 
Loving somebody in marriage is different. That's a lifelong, dedicated commitment. And you have made that statement before witnesses, not only on earth, but allowed God to make the final consideration in joining it. Amazing then that that honor to be seen in marriage, may we never allow that to slip from us. And to see the darkness so often appreciated in a world that looks upon it differently. These six questions perhaps take us to the seventh and final one and the lesson will be yours. As we've looked at these interview questions from so long ago, one of the things that has been so impressive to me, as I suppose it has been to you, has been the pertinence of them. You can imagine that on earth today, if Jesus were here in the flesh, those very questions would have been asked. A lot of things haven't changed. They were having trouble with marriage and divorce and remarriage back in the Lord's day. And you see, we today are still struggling with it because we just don't read and follow the Bible. So I've listed a few particulars because we know these are common today. A man and a woman get married, and for whatever reason, they just can't get along. The time comes that he just tires of the marriage. He wants out of it. Well, may I say, that's not fornication on her part. Any divorce that is secured doesn't have the appreciation of and the blessing of God, and he can't ever remarry. Not with the blessing of God. Because to do so, he'd be in adultery. And the person he marries would be in adultery. And we know then that they're consigned forevermore not to go to heaven, and how terrible is that? But not only that, look at the second possibility. What if there's a man that commits fornication, as tragic as that is? His wife learns about this. She has the right to divorce him by the very blessing of God, and she can remarry. What if she, however, commits fornication after he does, but before the divorce is secured? Neither one of them can remarry. Both of them have, in fact, not been faithful to that marriage and therefore don't meet the requirement of having the blessing of God to enter into a second union. They'll have to remain single for life. Look at the third one. This one. What if we have a situation where, again, maybe in a particular marriage circumstance, one of them steps out on the other one, committing fornication, sexual immorality, Maybe if some small amount of time passes and you realize the other makes some other faulty decision, but at the very least is not interested in maintaining the integrity and the faithfulness of the marriage. One more time, neither of them can remarry. Neither of them would meet the requirements that the Lord has set out in the verses we've studied this morning. As we close the slide, divorce is a very serious problem we know that roughly half, if we're to believe the statistics at least, roughly half of all marriages that take place will ultimately end in divorce. It's no wonder that there's such weakness in relation to the family unions. No wonder such weakness in all that's based upon the foundation of the family. Today, how strongly must we hold true to the Word of God I know that the Lord's statement in verse number 9 
was not popular then, and it is not popular now. And you can find individuals, you can even find congregations who will disagree pretty strongly with some of what we have studied this morning, as unbelievable as that is. It's the very lips of Jesus, and yet there are congregations who will say, but the love of God will overrule this, and maybe you were in a bad marriage at once, and you got out of it however you could, and now you enter this next one, God will bless you from now on. That isn't right. That flies in the face of what the Lord taught in Matthew 19, 9. That would mean the latter part of that verse, Jesus really didn't mean what He said. Surely we can't believe that. The Lord spoke the truth. As uncomfortable as to some that has come to be in our society, you and I will cling to it because it's from heaven. As we close our lesson today, having reflected upon these ancient interviews, we've learned a number of quick things that we might summarize as it relates to our study today. Marriage is from God. May we never allow some anthropologist to tell us men came up with it. Man didn't come up with it. God originated it. And in fact, from the very beginning, it was the thing God embedded in His creation upon this earth. The sweet blessing it has been to many have certainly raised a lot of questions and problems. And our third observation, the, no, the participants that enter into it, God has restricted. Not anybody can enter into marriage. Not only that, the issues concerning divorce, it is possible to end a marriage, but only the way that God has asserted is, is right. Today, as we hopefully have been reminded of some of these things, we'll be determined to teach them to our children and our grandchildren so that future generations can be blessed with marriage the way God intended it. The good thing of Proverbs 18, the good thing of Proverbs 31, today as we've been reminded of this, if there's anyone in this assembly in regard to any sin in life and you would wish to come back to Jesus Christ, your Savior. Don't you realize that you can do that? You can leave this building today re reinvigorated, renewed, and rededicated in your service to God. You know that you need to repent of sins and confess them. But may I say, if there's someone here who has never become a Christian, I'll say that the best way by far to have a great marriage is to be a great Christian. You need to be a Christian to be a good husband. You need to be a Christian to be the best wife you can be, the best father or mother you can be. And don't you want Jesus on your side? Don't you want the Lord working with you to help structure your family as solidly as it ought to be? If today we can be of help in response to that, to that need and that longing you've got, won't you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized? We'd be delighted to help you. And we'd be delighted to do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.